Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Talk Recorded live. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us. My name is Bill James. I am an occupational therapist with the SSM Rehab Network in St. Louis, Missouri, and editor of the Technology Special Interest Section Quarterly Newsletter. I will be your moderator for this call. On behalf of the TSIS leadership team, it is my pleasure to welcome you to the AOTA TSIS virtual chat. You can participate in this conversation by telephone and or by computer. You can listen live by telephone by calling 724-444-7444 and entering call ID 138131. Or you can participate in the call uh, on the web by visiting talkshoe.com slash tc slash 138131. And there should be the same instructions for future TSAS virtual chats. So if you ever care to join us, there's your information. Um, of course, you can just listen to the discussion, but we encourage you to actively participate by submitting questions for our guests. You can type questions or comments into the chat section of our TalkShoe page our talk shoe page. Uh, we will also open up phone lines a bit later so that you can ask questions by phone. Uh, this evening we will be discussing the topic of the June 2015 TSIS newsletter titled, A Consumer-Centered Approach to Evaluating Assistive Technology Usability Outcomes. If you would like to download the article, AOTA members can go to aota.org slash TSIS look in the Resources section, and click Technology Special Interest section Quarterly Newsletter. Our guests this evening are the authors of that newsletter, Adam Kinney and Lynn Gitlow. Adam Kinney is an occupational therapist at SUNY Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. In 2014, Adam earned his Master of Science degree from Ithaca College, where he received the Graduate Professional Excellence Award in Occupational Therapy. Early in his career, Adam has already co-authored an article in OT practice, and in 2014, he presented at both the AOTA and ATIA conferences. His personal interests include the use of assistive technology to assist the veteran population. Adam Kinney, thank you for being here. Thank you for that introduction. This should be an interesting discussion. I'm looking forward to it. Indeed, agreed. And Dr. Lynn Gitlow is Associate Professor in the Department of Occupational Therapy at Ithaca College. In her nearly 30 years as an occupational therapist, Dr. Gitlow has been a tireless advocate for assistive technologies and environmental interventions in occupational therapy practice. She is active in ATIA, RESNA, and AOTA. In 2014, AOTA recognized her contributions to the profession by inducting her into the roster of fellows. Dr. Gitlow, thank you for joining us. Thank you. I'm really excited about this talk. Thank you. Uh, well, again, thank you both for being here and for your outstanding TSIS quarterly newsletter article. Um, your article took an interesting approach uh, that I 
hope our readers appreciated it as much as I did. Uh, you took an example of a single specific piece of assistive technology, and you used that to illustrate the importance of tracking AT utilization outcomes. Uh, by now, I would like to think that all OTs are comfortable with using basic AT as a tool in their, in their toolbox. And I think we all recognize the importance of outcomes assessment, or at least I, I hope we do. Uh, but I'm not sure that many of us has, have really considered the intersection of those topics of AT utilization and outcomes assessment. Uh, so you went to great lengths in your article to really lay out the official positions and the rationale for outcomes assessment in AT use. Um, but for the purpose of our talk this evening, could you set the table for us a bit? Uh, what out, why is outcomes assessment and AT provision and use specifically so important? Well, I think it's so important because it allows us to get the information we need to make sure that the client is actually using the, the technology. Um, it allows us to, to see A, you know, is the client going to use it? B, is it having a functional impact? Um, and C, why? And we can use that information for this specific intervention and interventions for the future as well. Yeah, and I think um, you make a really good point, Bill, that um, assistive technology is part of the toolbox of occupational therapists. Um, we have the skills and knowledge to use it as part of our intervention toolbox. So to some extent, um, just looking at the outcomes of all any of the interventions that we use are critical for documenting the effectiveness of our interventions. And um, just as with doing that kind of outcomes assessment in occupational therapy, when you do focus in assistive technology, the same kind of need is, is in the assistive technology field as well. We really need to be on top of demonstrating the outcomes of our interventions and in particular that they increase specifically for occupational therapists um, participation in meaningful occupations. And so I think that's crucial, you know, as you pointed out, across uh, OT interventions, we want to know that people are following through with our recommendations or we want to know whether people are following through with our recommendations and what the value of those is. Um, so I agree with you completely that we're talking about really a process that should happen throughout our practice. But why specifically do we need to think about AT? Um, I, I guess how is it different from measuring outcomes for anything else that we do? Um, some of the tools that one might use to look at those outcomes, for example, in our specific study, we used a specific tool that is um, focused on the psychosocial impact of assistive devices, which is one important consideration because of the meaning associated with the use of assistive technology. But again, I think you know, demonstrating the outcomes of interventions whatever they might be, are, are really, we know that that's critical in our field. Yeah, and, and one thing I learned 
about assistive technology outcomes from this study is that a lot of times we're just looking at what uh, what occupation that that device is specifically made to address. So if it's a communication device, um, is it having an impact on their ability to communicate? But it, what I learned is it's a lot more than that. Um, it's are they able to bring that device out in public? And so how is that interacting with their environment and the context that they need to communicate in? That makes any sense. That does make sense, and that's really, I think that's what's so fascinating about the work that you did here was uh, the different types of outcomes you got, uh, or the different outcomes you, you considered, and then the, the surprising almost results that you got. Mm -hmm. um, I, and I have to admit, my bias here is from a background in straight objective neuroscience research. Uh, and as an OT, I, I rarely admit that. But one of the points that you raised in your quarterly and that I found so fascinating was the value of those subjective outcomes. Um, before we dive too far into the specific case example that you described in your quarterly, could you tell us a bit about your approach to subjective outcomes assessments? What types of questions do you ask? Uh, and what did those questions give you that say just giving a, a yes or no or five-point scale uh, wouldn't have given you? Um, well, we use the, the Canadian Occupational Performance Measure. Uh, so the questions we asked were standardized in a way. It was a semi-structured interview. Um, so we had some structure to it. Um, but what it really allowed us to do that a straight standardized um, questionnaire that has the same items that you give to everybody is it's a little bit more open-ended. And it allows the client to kind of lead us where they want to go. So it ends up being much more individualized. Um, and I think that's key for assistive technology because there's various devices that address the same functional goal, but one might work for one person and one might not work for another person, depending on the users, context, values, um, things like that. And I, I also would add to that, that that using the COPM, it asks you to look at self-care, productivity, and um, leisure. And it, it begs you to ask questions that you might not have thought about. So, for example, for um, the device that we were looking at, it may not have occurred to us that for some people that device allowed them to do their ADLs more easily. I mean, right. it may, but because we, there is that semi-structured interview, and we do have to go through all those areas. We asked areas that, I'm, I'm just saying for me personally, that I might not have asked if I didn't use that format. Right. That's an excellent point. I think the, the COPM, I would like to think, and again, this is my own bias coming out, I would like to think that all OTs know what it is and use it. I think it's such a powerful tool for us. Um, could one of you take a moment and explain, just in case anyone in our audience isn't familiar with the COPM, could you explain the format of it and, and how it works? Well, like uh, Lynn mentioned, there's uh, various subsections um, that deal with, um, like you mentioned, productivity, leisure, 
self-care, things like that. Um, and the user lists certain activities that they find most important in each of those sections. And they rank them based on importance. Um, they then rank those, I think it's five most important um, yeah. activities based on uh, performance on a scale of 1 to 10 and their satisfaction with that performance on a scale of 1 to 10. Um, and you can uh, calculate the change in satisfaction and change in performance score um, by giving the copum again after the intervention to kind of gauge how effective the intervention was. And if, if you have a change in two points, that's a that's considered to be a clinically significant finding. Right. So that's it's a perfect explanation. I, the reason I think it's such a valuable tool, and no, I don't have any vested interest in it, I'm just really impressed with the tool, is the fact that it does give you, or give the, the client or the person being interviewed the opportunity to identify and rank that importance, first of all, uh, so that you are subsequently really just asking about those most important activities as rated by the individual, uh, then getting good quantifiable information uh, with those 10-point scores, but uh, but very meaningful to the individual. So uh, again, I apologize to the audience if this is uh, obvious information, but I, I really think you'd be committed for using an outcomes assessment that is so uh, client-centered uh, but also so methodologically strong and give such good information. Um, so obviously you went into this with a good understanding of um, the issues and outcomes assessment in OT and with a good methodology for, for getting the information that you needed, but you still came away with some surprising results. So can you describe the study to us a bit? Uh, to, to set up for us the, the surprising results, what exactly did you do and maybe what were you looking to find? Um, well, it was a retrospective uh, case. Um, so we looked at existing mountain movers, mountain mover users. Um, and I guess I should back up and actually explain what the mountain mover is. That might be helpful. Yes, please. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a, a system for mounting uh, various assistive devices. Um, we had people connecting cameras, uh, computers, laptops, tablets, communication devices, and you can then mount those devices to either a wheelchair or any uh, flat surface. And what the users really pointed out to us that made it kind of different from a lot of mounting systems is it's easy to move. So you get a lot more flexibility. Um, you don't even need much fine motor coordination to use the, the switches. So like Lynn pointed out, we had a lot of people that said it was easier to get out of the way when they needed to transfer to do ADLs, things like that. Um, is that a good explanation of the mountain mover on? I, I think so. I'm, it, yeah. It, it, <laughs> Okay, so back to, back to the study, I'm sorry. So we looked at existing users um, using the COPA. We asked them to rate their performance before they received the mountain mover and after. And we used um, 
an additional standardized instrument that used the Likert scale um, that's specific to assistive technology um, called the psychosocial, well, PIADS for short, because I don't remember the full acronym. Psychosocial but, impact of assistive devices. There we go. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so every everybody that we talked to took the PIADS, and after they were done, they had the option of participating in the COPUM. So we had four people take that semi-structured interview. Um, so we were interested in, in seeing a real quantifiable uh, part of this, this study um, with that PIADS and using the COPUM to kind of get an individualized um, look at it. I hope that answers the question. Sure. Um, so in the uh, in your quarterly article, then uh, you describe this case example, um, and if I understand correctly, so a subset of the people who went through your uh, your quantitative objective measure then went on to complete the COPM. Correct. Yes. Right. And so it's interesting there. You used a uh, again a very a very objective. Uh, uh, force choice uh, uh, instrument along with the, the COPM. How did the results of that uh, complement each other? Well, or was uh, there information from the COPM that, uh, that you otherwise wouldn't have gotten um, from the PIADS or, or that you did not otherwise expect? Yeah, I think in general the PIADS gave us a sense of the broad effect of the device on the person's independence, um, psychosocial well-being, and the COPUM kind of complemented it by giving us a sense of exactly how that happened um, in a very individualized way. It, it kind of personified those numbers, if that makes sense, and humanized them. And I also think it Broadened, broadened our way of thinking about um, the impact that a mounting device has on one's life, as opposed mm -hmm. to the way Adam said what Adam said before is, as opposed to just impacting that part of one's life that relates to the device that was mounted on the mount. Right. And um, so we so found. I'm sorry. No, go right ahead. I was going to ask you to to expound on that. Go right ahead. Okay, so we've in with the psychosocial impact tool, we found that the use of the device improved people's confidence and effectiveness um, in when they were using the um, mountain mover in doing things that they were doing, but we didn't find out from that what it is exactly that they were doing. We just found right. out that they were satisfied and feeling more effective and psychosocially satisfied with the device. But it was the COPUM that gave us a much broader insight to the kinds of things the device allowed them to do that, that for me, I wouldn't have thought of. Right, exactly. And so and that's I, I, I found so... Oh, go right ahead, Adam. 
play. And I really think that this kind of subjective, individualized research is more useful in a clinical setting. Um, it's one thing to say that a device makes people more independent, um, especially with assistive devices, because it's kind of um, kind of evident. Like if if you give someone a wheelchair, there's a good chance that they're going to improve their function. But you know, what about that wheelchair specifically improve their life and improve their sense of meaning? Well, and that's the point. Uh, one of the points that you made uh, in the PSAS quarterly that I found just so fascinating. Uh, you explained throughout your your background or introduction section, if you will, uh, that traditional uh, studies of AT utilization tend to look at the specific uh, outcomes that the device was intended to address or the specific tasks or functions that that device was intended to uh, to address. But mm -hmm. as you both pointed out just now and, and you point out so well in your article, uh, the way these people were using uh, the devices was largely unexpected. It wasn't uh, they weren't just using the device for the for the purposes you expected. We, we all think when you uh, appropriately uh, fit and provide someone with a wheelchair that you're increasing their mobility and their access to their environment, assuming the environment uh, allows for it. Um, but I think what you pointed out so well was that it was so much more than that. Um, what were some of the ways that they were using the, the mountain mover or what, uh, what activities were impacted that you hadn't counted on? Um, that you would have missed if you were just asking about uh, what was expected. Right. We a couple surprising um, ones. One was uh, a person with their previous mounting device couldn't be in the wheelchair with the device for long periods of time, and she used the specific example of she didn't want to go shopping with her mother because it was so uncomfortable. Um, and she needed that mount to communicate, so it just wasn't an occupation that she wanted to engage in, and she wasn't spending time with her mo uh, mother as a result. But with the mountain mover, she was able to move it away much more easily, and that occupation became much more comfortable, and she was able to engage in it again. Um, another example was a user used it while playing adaptive baseball. Um, so she was able to, you know, again, attach a communication device, but when it was time for her to go up to bat, she could swing it away and participate in that occupation. So it was kind of allowed an easier transition between those occupations that we as people without disabilities take for granted. Or for me, something like a person would have a communication device mounted on their mounted, but they would talk about how the mountain mover helped them to be able to transfer from one hmm. place. And it's kind of a leap that I wouldn't have taken. You know, I would have thought, okay, so you can communicate better because you have access to your communication device. But making that leap to, well, you know, now I can use the bathroom more easily is a leap that I wouldn't have made. And at least it's incredibly beneficial for the client beyond what you would have been able to to assess with 
again, if you had just asked about that communication aspect. Right, and that was the value of the COPM because I probably wouldn't have asked that question if I didn't, you know, have to say, okay, self-care. So, you know, what about this, that, and the other thing in the area of Mm self-care? So that brings up an interesting point, and I... I don't mean to take this too far away from your quarterly article, and if this is outside of your expertise, uh, feel free to to dodge the question. It's okay. Um, But I think that really brings up an excellent point for, uh, we've made the point that this is the interesting application here was AT specific, but that brings up a really important point for us as a profession as a whole. Uh, Those are the types of questions you're, getting at basic questions, not just of accessibility, but of occupation, occupational performance, occupational choice um, that we like to think that we're all interested in. But I guess the question becomes, how many of us are really asking the right questions? Uh, So again, you're talking about proper outcomes assessment, helping to guide us in asking the right questions. Um, I don't know that I have a question that comes from that. Um, again, other than just to compliment the the work that you did in the in the great choice of a of a measure here. Um, yeah, no, and I think that's a great point. And I find myself in that funk. I'm working in acute care right now, and it's it doesn't lend itself a lot of times to very um, objective measures. Um, but it's something that I forget to ask about, like you know. Not only are you are you able to do your lower body dressing, but what other things do you like to do, and how can we use that to motivate you, or to help you in some way, and bring back a sense of meaning in this time of your life where you're it's one of the worst times in your life, and that's an important kind of thing to ask. So to try to integrate some more client-centered questions in my assessment is important. Yeah, and for me, uh, no, go right ahead, Lynn. That's okay. Okay, for me, if I don't use, I'm, I'm, I find that um, using a conceptual model and then a tool that helps me apply that model makes me. It's easier for me to do it that way because then I don't forget things. If I don't do that, if I don't start out that way then I find myself forgetting to ask critical questions and um, in particular, like, what is it you'd like to do? If I don't ask that question, I, I, my interventions aren't, um, I, I find that I make mistakes with my interventions. Right. And but that's for a me, perfect it's, point. Yeah, it's just the, it's the easier way to do it. It's, it gives me a, a, a systematic roadmap to make mm-hmm. sure that I am getting to what is it that you want to do rather than what is it I think you should do or might you know, be interested in trying out with you or something like that. It makes me stay client-centered and occupation-focused. I, I think that's an outstanding point and really is at the, the core of what we are and are supposed to be as a profession. Um, I know as someone who is fairly new to clinical practice, uh, one of the lessons I had to learn early on was 
although I have my conceptual model, and I know going into an eval, uh, the types of questions I would likely ask, given the person, what little I know about them, their diagnosis. Uh, I really had learned early on that one of my very first questions for people is, what do you like to do? Uh, mm-hmm. if I'm, even if I'm not going to have time to do a COPM uh, I, as I'm developing that occupational profile. And I think it surprises people <laughs> that that first question someone's asking them is, what do you like to do? Um, it's, it's more motivating and it drives home, this is why you're here. It's about the rest of right. your life, right. not about any of the objective measures that I care about. <laughs> I just care to get you back to doing those things. Right, exactly. Uh, so the other thing that you did uh, in your particular study, to, to bring it back to your quarterly here, that I thought was so interesting, and we've talked about this a bit already. We, you used the one example of the mountain mover, and we've talked about it now really at some length, but um, I think to, to really drive home the point for our audience, what you did so well was draw that up as an example of how we should uh, approach outcomes assessment specifically in AT. So aside from uh, this great point of working up an occupational profile, uh, determining, uh, of, giving the, of giving clients the ability to subjectively report what they care about and want to work on, are there any other take-homes here for you um, that a clinician out there listening right now who's maybe saying, that's great, I don't have time to do COPM in my practice, the, the classic complaint everybody has is time and productivity. What other recommendations might you have for, for, that, uh, for that OT out there? Well, well I guess... No, go ahead. Go ahead, Adam. Go ahead. Um, the way this whole study started was um, I was at a ResNA conference and um, the developer of the Mountain Mover was looking to pe- was looking for people to help do studies on the impact of the device, which was really cool in the first place that a developer was so interested in client outcomes. And as um, so, I'm, I'm gonna I think I'm gonna bring this back to the clinicians who may not have time to do these sorts of studies is mm-hmm. that as an educator, I'm always looking to collaborate with clinicians who don't have time or people who don't have time um, to bring studies that students, to work on studies that students can, we can do that collaboration. So you might be a clinician who knows that you have tons of data, but you just don't have time to take a systematic look at it. Well as an educator, we have students who might be able to make that bridge for you. And in the case of the Mount Mover, we, um, when I heard that the developer was looking for somebody to help with outcome study, that to me was a perfect opportunity for um, a collaboration. And that's how it really started. And so that's a great point. Uh, you bring up this larger um, model of, of clinical research, of clinical outcomes uh, research that, again, I think most clinicians recognize as valuable. We all like to think and say that we are conducting evidence-based practice, 
but what you're really talking about here is the opportunity for those clinicians to help generate and drive evidence production uh, to help drive what we think practice ought to be. Um, and th so that's an interesting model. You, you bring up the opportunity for students to, to get involved and clinicians out there to get involved. I understand that you've been doing, uh, the, specifically Dr. Gitlow, you've been doing research on uh, assistive technologies and environmental access for a long time. Is this a common model that you've used before? Uh, I don't mean to open you up to potentially a flood of requests of people wanting to get involved. Um, but is this a common way for, for you to see research work? It's something that I try and do. I usually try and collaborate with somebody who needs some assistance in analyzing their data or doing a study because I find it useful for students and um, useful for clinicians or other, you know, it's an inter, might be an interdisciplinary collaboration or um, a university cl clinical collaboration. I find it very useful. Yeah, it was Excellent. certainly an awesome opportunity for me. I was I was one of Dr. Gitlow's students. That's how this project kind of um, came about. How I got involved, at least. Um, and I also I also did an internship um, at an outpatient cognitive rehabilitation program, um, and I was kind of I took the role as their research assistant, and it was amazing how surprised they were at how much I got done because they had this, you know, caseload as practitioners that I didn't have to worry about and I could crunch that data and, and think about it because I had the time. Um, and I think back to when I did an intern, I, I got my uh, bachelor's in statistics and I had to do an internship and, and I kind of started thinking, like, what if we started harnessing those resources to at least get yep. projects going because the clinical environment is where all of this research really should be happening and, and that's where we're going to get the most valuable outcomes with real people in real life situations. I imagine that. Isn't that the, uh, isn't that the, the goal that uh, we should have as, I say we as educators, no longer being an educator myself, but uh, of connecting the the clinical practice with the research uh, that many uh, educators are working on, and the and the goal of education of OT students. Now, Adam, you mentioned there, uh, you kind of slipped in there <laughs> that you actually had a background that really lent itself uh, to this model of of clinical research, having an undergraduate degree in statistics. With that in mind, and knowing that you may be a bit biased here. Um, do you see difficulties for uh, your OT classmates, or maybe more to the point, if there are students out there listening right now, recommendations for them of things they may uh, do to, to better prepare themselves to be involved in this kind of work? Um, well, less concentration on statistics, but really research design, things like that, um, because thinking objectively does have value. Um, it allows us to track our interventions in an, in an actual clinical reasoning environment. You know, it, 
if this is working, then I should see an objective uh, difference. So as much as we are, we're talking about the value of subjective um, evidence, there is a place for objective um, evidence and thinking in that way as well. And, and the second thing would just be get involved in these projects because A, it changes the way that I, I kind of thought about my clinical experience too. It wasn't just research, it was getting the opportunity to talk to these clients in an opportunity that I wouldn't have had otherwise. And while you're in school, you have these opportunities that you won't have. Um, take it from me, you won't have these opportunities in the clinical world. So take advantage of it while you can. That's an excellent point. And, and I'll play off of that and say, and uh, make sure to to find a position and work for an employer that values that and, and continue to use those skills even after you're, uh, you're out in practice. Uh, I do want to remind uh, our listeners out there, uh, we, there are quite a few of you this evening, some online and some on the phone. If you have any questions for either of our guests, uh, please do uh, chime up any time. In fact, we'll open it up right now. If anyone has any, list, uh, any questions for Adam Kenny or Lynn Gitlow, uh, I'll step aside for just a moment and listen, uh, and we can move on uh, after that. Any questions? And I suppose even the, the crickets don't have questions this evening. That's okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, so... I want to bring it back to specifically this point. I don't mean to belabor the point, but I really want to focus on what I thought was so compelling about your article, that this is a model for outcomes assessment and assistive technology utilization. You had one instrument that we've talked about uh, quite a bit, the COPM, and another that was really focused on AT usage and the psychosocial impact. Uh, are there other instruments, and again, I suppose this is directed more at Dr. Gitlow having done more of this research over time, but for either of you, are there other instruments that someone working in or implementing AT in their practice, are there other assessments that they should think about for for outcomes assessment? Well, actually, I think Adam, you know, can address that um, given the, the field work placement that he had. Do you feel like you can talk about the MPT a little bit, Adam? Yes. Um, that, for those of you who aren't, who aren't familiar... Um, sorry, I used that jargon. Sorry. That's okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry. No, it's okay. Um, it's the matching person and technology um, model, and it collects information on, to be honest, it's sort of similar to the COPUM, Mm -hmm. um, but it, it collects more information on the person's um, abilities, whether those are cognitive capacities, um, physical capacities, their uh, their subjective well-being, their, um, what else is it? Oh, aspects of their environment. And the technology. And the technology. Um, and more specifically, what about that technology, what aspects of its use um, is most important to them. Uh, for instance, using the technology with their friends and family, 
um, willingly. And so it asks questions like that and it asks them to rate it on a scale of one to five. Um, so it's a really comprehensive assessment and we're using it in that uh, cognitive rehabilitation um, program. But we, uh, my job was to kind of tweak it to kind of go more towards cognitive specific um, technologies. So it ended up being a lot more geared towards uh, phones and tablets. Um, but the the leaders of that program would be able to tell you a lot more than I could. Yeah, uh, it was the, the matching persons and technology um, conceptual model was developed by Dr. Marcia Shearer. And um, you can search her name and the matching person and technology assessment tools. Again, for me, if I have a conceptual model and then tools to operationalize that model, it just makes my life easier. So that's a conceptual model that is well supported with assessment tools. And for those of you uh, listening via phone, I just posted to uh, our talk, talk shoe chat. Uh, if you're interested in learning more about uh, the matching person and technology assessment process, uh, you can go to matchingpersonandtechnology.com. Uh, I assume that's uh, the, the best source for information uh, on that model. Um, it, it also provides an interesting segue, or at least preview, of next quarter's TSIS quarterly. Adam, you described specifically looking at the assessment process uh, for using, it uh, sounds like, mobile devices uh, in cognitive interventions. Uh, just as a preview for those who don't know yet, next quarter's TSIS quarterly is by uh, Tony Gentry and deals with using a mobile device in uh, cognitive rehab and uh, actually specifically in the work setting uh, for someone with a... Uh, with a cognitive impairment. So if that's a topic that interests you, stay tuned, and we will uh, we'll dive into that in even more detail next, uh, oh goodness, whenever that comes out, I believe in September. Uh, I don't believe that they use the MPT process, uh, but they describe a, an assessment process that's very similar to, to what you just laid out. Uh, mm -hmm. So I, I think it's a fascinating area and one that uh, we as a profession are going to have to do more uh, and, and fortunately the TSIS is trying to bring it to you. Let us see. I'll admit that I, I'm thrilled that you brought up the MPT approach because it's one with which I am not familiar and uh, browsing through the materials they have on that website are really, uh, they put quite a bit of information out there uh, and asks great questions, starting with overall experiences with current technologies and much like the COPM, first asking the individual to identify what are the technologies that you uh, use most frequently rather than assuming that going in. Uh, so it's interesting, even the measurement model matches uh, the way you approach the rest of uh, the work that you've described so far. Right. So that's a great choice. Yeah, I think um, both in occupational therapy and assistive technology, the conceptual models that are used in both areas are very similar in that they look at 
matching a person with something mm-hmm. they want to do and using technology as a bridge towards that. Mm-hmm. And um, so when I teach assistive technology, um, I find that the conceptual models are very, very similar. That makes perfect sense. Um, and interestingly, though, I think, uh, well, again, maybe I'm stating something obvious to our listeners. We as OTs, I mentioned, I think we're all comfortable at some level with AT as a tool in our toolbox. Um, but I wonder if you might be able to uh, explain for those listening from a resonant perspective, from an ATIA perspective, uh, the added value or opportunities there for additional training. If this is an area, if someone listening right now thinks, uh, boy, I really need to make better use of AT uh, and better uh, do better measurements of AT use in my practice, uh, do you have recommendations for them? Uh, the reason I ask, I'll continue to, to beat the question here, uh, on our previous call, uh, or one of our previous calls, we talked about uh, seating in a car for children with complex medical conditions. And the point we had to make over and over again was that was an area that most OTs are not qualified to address. As much as we may think we are and as much as we like to tinker and try to match the person and the device, uh, there's some additional training or some additional consideration that needs to go into it. So for those who aren't familiar uh, with certification through RESNA or with ATIA as an organization, uh, what should we know if we really want to expand that area of our practice? Um, just kind of before I talk about that, I think um, one yeah. of the things that I find um, is that people are intimidated by the word technology. And if we look at the ah. definition of assistive technology, it's any tool or device, any tool. So I think, you know, that's an important thing to recognize that, as you mentioned before, Bill, it's part of our toolbox. But just like any area of practice where you specialize in it, and I would say, you know, you can look at specializations in hand therapy or anything else, that there's the things that we're comfortable with, and then we go on to get special training. And then... um, RESNA certainly is the organization that certifies people who want to specialize in assistive technology, just as one might like to specialize in any other area of occupational therapy. We, we, as we, de- as we become, you know, more focused in a particular area, we all get some kind of specialization. But RESNA is a great. Um, interdisciplinary organization. I love that about it. As is ATIA, very interdisciplinary organizations where we can start networking with the members of the assistive technology teams who bring that um, that technology to the clients who need it. And RESNA is the organization that certifies people at who are specialized in assistive technology. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, Well, I hope for anyone listening out there who is either currently using, I think to some extent we're all using technology, as you you explained uh, 
the term assistive technology is almost redundant. Any technology is there to assist us with something. Uh, but anyone looking to implement assistive technology or more specific for this evening, who is looking to improve their outcomes assessment when implementing assistive technology in their practice, uh, I think you've given us a, a great roadmap for how to do that and a good idea of what types of questions to ask and what types of answers to listen for. Uh, so I, I thank you for that. Uh, our time is drawing near a close here. I'll give one more opportunity if any of the listeners out there have any questions. Uh, otherwise, we'll draw the conversation to a close. Any questions, uh, this is your last opportunity if you'd like to, to let us know. Okay, well in that case, uh, I want to thank both of our guests, Adam Kinney and Lynn Gitlow. Uh, together they are the authors of the June 2015 TSIS quarterly newsletter, A Consumer-Centered Approach to Evaluating Assistive Technology Usability Outcomes. Adam Kinney, Occupational Therapist at SUNY Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. That was a lot of fun. And Dr. Lynn Gitlow, Associate Professor of Occupational Therapy at Ithaca College. Thank you for really all that you've done and continue to do for our profession. And thank you for being with us this evening. And thanks for this opportunity to let me talk about what I love to do. So I really appreciate it. You're quite welcome. Uh, thank you as well to everyone who joined us either live uh, or by phone. Uh, I'm sorry, live by phone or online, and to those of you listening to the archived version of this virtual chat. Uh, if you have additional questions about usability outcomes in assistive technology, please do log on to the TSIS forum on OT Connections to continue the conversation. The easiest way to find that is to go to aota.org TSIS and click the link in the resources section. Again, that's aota.org TSIS. Look under resources and click the Technology SIS Discussion Forum. Also, as I mentioned before, please plan to join us in September when Tony Gentry of Virginia Commonwealth University will join us to discuss his upcoming TSIS quarterly article uh, titled, Mobile Technologies as Vocational Supports for Workers with Cognitive Behavioral Challenges. Uh, we'll continue much of the discussion from this evening and we'll talk about a structured approach to using mobile devices as cognitive supports on the job with a, another excellent case study that illustrates how the process can work in practice. Uh, that quarterly will be published on September 1st, and the virtual chat will be at 7 Eastern, 6 Central, on Thursday, September 10th. Until then, on behalf of the Technology Special Interest Section, I'm Bill James. Thank you very much for joining us. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. <laughs>